Welcome to PQ Talk on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital. And we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med ed in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Welcome to our episode of a 16-year-old with low blood pressure after ingesting her grandmother's prescription medications. Here's the case presented by Rahul. In this episode, we explore a particularly complex case involving a 16-year-old girl admitted to the pediatric ICU for the intentional ingestion of her grandmother's medications. She came in with the chief complaint of taking an alarming quantity of amlodipine, specifically 40 tablets, each 5 milligrams, which, as you know, amlodipine is a calcium channel blocker. This incident occurred approximately 18 to 20 hours prior to her admission to the PICU. Initially, the patient chose to not disclose her actions, but later she started feeling weak and experienced vomiting, and this led the family to seek medical help. Upon evaluation in the emergency department, the patient was notably hypotensive with systolic blood pressures recorded in the 80s. Despite denying any fever, vision changes, headache, or loss of consciousness, she admitted to ingesting the medication deliberately due to anger, a concerning revelation that highlighted her history of prior suicidal attempts and hospitalizations for similar ingestions. The initial workup in the emergency department revealed critical findings, bilateral pneumonia in the lower lobes, increased soft tissue density in the anterior mediastinum, all of these suggestive of an inflammatory, infectious, or reactive lymphadenopathy process. She was given antibiotics and started on norepinephrine infusions early in her course through her peripheral IV. Of note, her urine pregnancy test was confirmed to be negative. So what did her lab show? The lab findings were significant for an elevated white blood cell count at 16.9. She had a thrombocytosis of 476 and a mild AKI with a creatinine of 1.85. This was initially due to hypoperfusion as well as the direct toxic effects of the ingested medication. A blood ethanol level was detected along with a positive test for THC, contributing to the complexity of her case. All right, so what did her blood gas show? Her initial blood gas showed a pH of 7.45, CO2 of 30.5, and an oxygen partial pressure that indicated significant respiratory compromise. Alongside an initially elevated lactate of 4 was noted, and this rapidly increased to 6.2, pointing to ongoing systemic hypoperfusion. All right, so she was transferred to the PICU, and in the PICU, the patient's course was marked by the need for aggressive respiratory and hemodynamic support. She was on three vasoactives and was increasingly becoming somnolent. High-flow nasal cannula therapy was initiated initially at 20 liters per minute to address her underlying respiratory disease, and a quick echo performed in the PICU showed normal right and left ventricular function with no structural anomalies or pericardial effusion. Overall, 
we assessed her to be in a very vasoplegic state. During her PICU stay, the physical exam revealed increased distress, a pulse of 105, respiratory rate of 36, and a blood pressure of 94 over 44. She was awake, alert, and oriented, yet reported feeling unwell and described a sensation of a, quote, golf ball in her chest. This exhibited the fact that she was increasingly anxious and pointed to significant discomfort. Finally, examination findings included decreased air entry at the bases, mild tachypnea, increased work of breathing, and cool extremities with the capillary refill time of two seconds with no evidence of trauma or rash. Excellent case, Rahul. So to summarize key elements from this case, we are discussing a 16-year-old patient who intentionally ingested her grandmother's medications and is now exhibiting several alarming clinical features upon presentation, including a preserved mental status, indicating that despite the severity of ingestion, her cognitive functions remain intact, a stable but non-variable heart rate, suggesting a potential impact on a cardiac autonomic regulation, Evidence of shock, as indicated by a systolic blood pressure of 80 millimeters of mercury upon presentation at an outside ER, fulfilling the criteria for hypotensive shock as per pediatric advanced life support or PALS guidelines. A wide pulse pressure, which points towards a significant decrease in systemic vascular resistance or the presence of vasoplasia, both of which are hallmark signs of severe physiologic stress. Now, collectively, these symptoms raise a significant concern for toxicity from calcium channel blockers, a critical condition that requires immediate and targeted intervention to mitigate the potentially life-threatening effects of such an overdose. Awesome, Pradeep. So let's dive into this case. This episode is going to be organized by first going through the pathophysiology of calcium channel blockers, and then we will pivot to the evidence-based management of calcium channel blocker overdose in the PICU. Let's start with a multiple choice question to deepen our understanding and introduce this topic. So methylene blue is considered a therapeutic option in cases of refractory vasoplegia resulting from calcium channel blocker toxicity. Which of the following mechanisms of action is most closely associated with methylene blue's use in this context? A. It enhances contractility by elevating cyclic AMP independently of beta adrenergic receptors. B. It stabilizes L type calcium channels in the heart and vasculature. C. It inhibits phosphodiesterase 3, thereby augmenting contractility. Or is it D? It inhibits guanylate cyclase, leading to reduced cyclic GMP production and thus diminishing endothelial smooth muscle relaxation. So Rahul, the correct answer is D. Methylene blue inhibits guanylate cyclase, resulting in decreased cyclic GMP production, which in turn reduces endothelial smooth muscle relaxation. This mechanism is particularly relevant in vasoplegic shock following calcium channel blocker toxicity or sepsis where nitric oxide simulation of soluble guanylate cyclase 
increases endothelial smooth muscle relaxation. By inhibiting this pathway, methylene blue effectively counteracts the excessive smooth muscle relaxation associated with these conditions. That was a great explanation to our question. And one of the things that I want to dive into now is the physiologic explanation of how does SVR relate to what exactly is going on in the vascular smooth muscle cell. So let's get into this. Recall that systemic vascular resistance is determined by the tone of the precapillary arterial. The contractile state of the vascular smooth muscle cell is referred to as the vascular tone, and it is regulated through a very important ion, intracellular calcium concentration. Now, vascular smooth muscle cell contraction is driven by a rise in cytosolic calcium concentration through the release of stored calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, as well as extracellular calcium influx through these voltage-gated sensitive channels. Extracellular calcium, we give exogenously through our IV access lines. Now, relaxation of the vascular smooth muscle, which is the other side of the spectrum, is driven by a fall in cytosolic calcium due to uptake of calcium by the sarcoplasmic reticulum and expulsion of potassium or calcium into the extracellular space. And remember, there are important primary active transport proteins, such as the calcium ATPase, which extrudes calcium from the intracellular to the extracellular space. Vascular tone is therefore dependent on the rate of calcium influx versus removal which in turn is regulated by intrinsic and extrinsic mechanisms. Some intrinsic regulators include what we've just talked about, nitric oxide, but there are others, prostacyclin, endothelin, and extrinsic factors include hormones such as vasopressin, as well as sympathetic neural control. All of these will be very relevant as we dive into the pathophysiology of calcium channel blockers. Excellent, Rahul. So uh, let's transition and talk about the pathophysiology of calcium channel blocker overdose. Rahul, can you shed some light on this topic? Absolutely, Pradeep. So in our case, we had a girl who came in with amlodipine overdose. Amlodipine is a calcium channel blocker. And what calcium channel blockers do is they inhibit L-type calcium channels in the heart and blood vessels, reducing calcium influx. Now, this action leads to decreased heart contractility, providing a negative ionotropic effect. It also provides a negative chronotropic effect. So these children are going to have a slower heart rate. And finally, it delays electrical conduction. And this is known as negative dromotropic effect. Now, in the arterioles, calcium channel blockers cause vasoplegia by relaxing smooth muscle cells and contributing to hypotension. Additionally, calcium channel blockers impair insulin release from the pancreas, often leading to hyperglycemia during toxicity. Dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, such as nifedipine, amlodipine, and nicardipine, primarily induce hypotension and reflex tachycardia, which may respond to fluid administration. Non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, like verapamil and diltiazem, can further depress heart function, risking pump failure. So let me just quickly summarize here, because this is very important. Dihydropyridines refer to the blood vessels. Non-dihydropyridines refer to the myocardium. Interestingly, 
Despite severe vasoplegia, patients' mental status often can remain clear. And this differentiates calcium channel blocker toxicity from other conditions. Unlike beta blockers, calcium channel blockers lack sodium channel blocking effects, minimizing the risk of seizures. However, beta blockers are associated with bradycardia, hypotension, and conduction delays, though their overall toxicity profile is generally considered less severe than that of calcium channel blockers, except for their potential to cause bronchospasm and hypoglycemia. This is contrasted with the hyperglycemia seen in calcium channel blocker toxicity. Calcium channel blocker toxicity disrupts heart and vascular function by blocking calcium influx, leading to hypotension, impaired heart function, and hyperglycemia, presenting a distinct clinical picture from beta blocker toxicity, which is key in guiding treatment strategies. All right, Pradeep. So how should a clinician proceed when a patient presents to the PICU or acute care setting with symptoms suggestive of calcium channel blocker toxicity, considering the fact that calcium channel blocker toxicity lacks a true specific toxidrome? I think in managing patients with suspected calcium channel blocker toxicity, it is important to recognize there's no specific toxidrome. Toxidrome is a set of symptoms indicating a particular type of poisoning. Rahul, when a patient reports ingesting calcium channel blockers and presents with bradycardia and hypotension, particularly affecting the diastolic pressure due to low systemic vascular resistance compared to the systolic pressure, calcium channel blocker toxicity should be high on your differential diagnosis. Interestingly, lab findings do not typically show a decrease in calcium levels, whether it's total or ionized calcium. However, Associated findings may include hyperglycemia, hypokalemia, and elevated serum lactate levels. In absence of a specific toxidrome for calcium channel blocker toxicity, the critical reliance on patient's ingestion history, thorough assessment for co-ingestions, and initial lab workup including BMP, CBC, serum and urine toxicology screens, coupled with a pregnancy test and an early consultation with poison control and toxicology experts are essential for the effective management of these patients. Awesome, Pradeep. And just to kind of drive home some of these key points, in cases of suspected calcium channel blocker toxicity, us as clinicians should rely on the patient's history of ingestion and the presence of bradycardia relative to the hypotension alongside laboratory findings like hyperglycemia, hypokalemia, and increased lactate levels. Now, we need to have prompt laboratory workup and early consultation with a key thought process that we should not be fooled into inaction due to the patient who has normal mental status in front of us, but the blood pressure is low. This is a herald sign that there could be an acute deterioration. So please make sure you continue to have a low threshold. All right, Pradeep, you are an experienced clinician. I would love to hear your general management framework when you have children who present with calcium channel blocker toxicity. 
So I think for uh, folks that are in community EDs and other hospitals, I think the first thing that should come to mind when managing a patient with a calcium channel blocker is to immediately transport such a patient to a facility that is equipped for extracorporeal support. Consideration should be given to gastric lavage and activated charcoal use within the first one to two hours to reduce any drug absorption. Initial management focuses on airway stabilization and hemodynamic support to prevent secondary complications. Early and aggressive volume resuscitation is essential, with adjustments based on patient's response and heart function, guided by a point-of-care ultrasound or echocardiography. Administer high-dose calcium, either calcium chloride or calcium gluconate, via an IV every 10 to 20 minutes or as a continuous infusion to counteract the calcium channel blockers effects on calcium influx crucial for heart contractility and vascular tone. Vasopressors, particularly norepinephrine, should be used as the first-line treatment for vasoplasia with epinephrine and vasopressin reserved for specific indications like shock or myocardial dysfunction. Atropine is recommended for bradycardia or conduction issues. In cases of cardiogenic shock or significant myocardial dysfunction, high-dose insulin therapy with dextrose provides improved myocardial performance, improving cardiac output through enhanced glucose and potassium utilization within myocardial cells. A starting dose of one unit per kilo bolus followed by an insulin infusion and titrated as needed while closely monitoring for euglycemia and potassium levels. Note the dose of high-dose insulin includes a bolus of one unit per kilo followed by an infusion of one unit per kilo per hour with maintenance of euglycemia with a dextrose infusion as needed and titration up to 10 units per kilo per hour. That was a great management framework, Pradeep. And just to drive some points home, calcium channel blocker toxicity, remember, impairs calcium entry into cells crucial for myocardial contraction and vascular tone. And that's why we see clinically hypotension and decreased cardiac output. So the management strategies really modulate this pathophysiology. We have to provide calcium, fluids, vasopressors, and high-dose insulin therapy. Rahul, what are some of the other therapies we use in a refractory vasoplasia when it comes to calcium channel blocker toxicity? This was a great time for us to really go into the depths of the literature to look at how calcium channel blocker toxicity can be so life-threatening that we need to go through some third or fourth line options. And in our multiple choice question, we talked about methylene blue. And so other tertiary therapies include glucagon, transvenous pacing, ventricular assist device, or VA ECMO. So in managing severe calcium channel blocker toxicity, us as clinicians have to understand several advanced therapeutic options beyond the standard interventions. So let's go through each of these. Glucagon acts independently of beta receptors, and what it does is it increases cyclic AMP and can improve heart rate, though its impact on blood pressure is minimum. It requires a loading dose followed by an infusion due to its short half-life with side effects including nausea and hyperglycemia. Methylene blue targets the nitric oxide cyclic GMP pathway. This reduces hypotension and vasopressor requirements by scavenging 
nitric oxide, and especially inhibiting its synthesis, though it carries risks of vomiting, dyspnea, and hemolytic anemia at high doses. A typical dose of methylene blue is about 1 to 2 milligrams per kilo, repeated every hour if needed, for a maximum total dose of 5 to 7 milligrams per kilo. Methylene blue has been shown in the literature to improve hypotension and reduce vasopressor need. Now, you may also consult with your cardiac intensivist as well as cardiac colleagues who are going to be helping you with external pacing. Now, external pacing may be warranted for refractory bradycardia due to calcium channel blocker poisoning. Plasmapheresis is also an adjunct therapy, though supported by case reports for severe amlodipine toxicity. It helps remove the cardiodepressant agents and has been shown to potentially shorten ECMO duration. This is due to the fact that amlodipine has a high protein binding and volume of distribution, and that's why it cannot be as amenable to CRRT therapy. However, there is another agent that we think about when we have these refractory ingestion cases, and that is intravenous lipid emulsion, also known as the lipid sink. Now, when we looked at the literature, intravenous lipid emulsion is not routinely recommended for calcium channel blocker toxicity due to concerns of worsening oral overdose outcomes by increasing gastrointestinal absorption of lipophilic drugs. So that's why for patients unresponsive to medical management, mechanical support options such as a ventricular assist device or cannulation onto veno-arterial ECMO should be considered. With VA ECMO showing survival rates up to 77%, underscoring the importance of integrating both the pathophysiologic understanding into choosing what's the most appropriate advanced therapy for these children. And I do want to point that if you have not listened to our lipid emulsion therapy episode, check it out. It's our third episode when we started PICU.com on call, and it's entitled PICU Applications of Lipid Therapy. So Pradeep, Do you mind just kind of taking us home today and shedding light on our patient's clinical course? Of course. So in this case, after first-line therapies failed to achieve the desired outcomes for this patient, the clinical team opted for venoarterial ECMO as a life-saving intervention. Plasmapheresis was performed concurrently with ECMO support, and a continuous venovenous hemofiltration was also utilized during ECMO course to manage fluid and electrolyte imbalances. After approximately 35 hours, the patients dependent on vasoactive medications decreased and ECMO support was minimized and decannulation was successfully performed. However, due to lung injury from aspiration and a history of vaping, the patient remained intubated, requiring gradual weaning from mechanical ventilation. Wow, Pradeep, this was probably a very intense case. And I really appreciate you highlighting the clinical presentation and the spectrum of disease which this patient uh, had. What were some of the key clinical pearls from here and any pitfalls for us as clinicians to avoid? Clinical pearls and pitfalls from this case emphasize the need for vigilance and prompt escalation of care in patients with severe vasoplasia due to calcium channel blocker toxicity. Despite a patient's level of alertness, rapid deterioration can occur, underscoring the importance of swift advancement to second-line therapies 
including mechanical support options like ECMO when first-line treatments prove ineffective. Additionally, this case highlights the necessity for higher-than-usual doses of calcium, uh, vasopressors, and insulin in managing such toxicities, warranting early placement of a central venous line to mitigate the risk of ischemic injury and facilitate the delivery of these medications to these patients. Absolutely, Pradeep. And I also want to underscore the team-based effort that it takes when we have these children. So let's go ahead and summarize today's episode. We have three key take-home points. First, pathophysiologically, calcium channel blocker toxicity primarily disrupts L-type calcium channels, precipitating hypotension and vasoplegia by diminishing cardiac contractility and thus causing vascular dilation. Point number two, initial management strategies for calcium channel blocker toxicity include aggressive fluid resuscitation, IV calcium supplementation, vasopressor administration, atropine for selected cases of bradycardia, and high-dose insulin therapy with glucose to support cardiac function and metabolic needs. If you're refractory to these first-line therapies, advanced therapeutics such as glucagon, methylene blue, plasmapheresis, and VA ECMO are critical considerations to reverse the toxic effects and support vital functions. This concludes our episode on calcium channel blocker toxicity, specifically amlodipine ingestion. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamat, and my wonderful co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.